Many years ago, when the planet Krypton, home of a race of supermen, exploded in space, the sole survivor was an infant boy who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's now playing Superman Movie Retrospective Series. Man, this is going to be good. Hosted by Stuart. Are these from your neighborhood? Well, I damn sure ain't from Beverly Hills. Hmm. Arnie. I think anybody would be mighty proud to have him in their family. And Jacob. I boogie around danger like a soul train dancer. <laughs> and these three new arrivals bring destruction in their way. These people have such powers, nothing can stop them. Now that you know, I think you should know it all. Tell me everything, starting with crystals. Can you read my mind? If so, you already know this podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Holy skunk sweat! Listener discretion is advised. Bring it on! There are questions to be asked. And it is time for you to do so. Here in this, this fortress of solitude, we shall try to find the answers together. Today, and Jacob's going to have to tell me why, we're talking about steel. Starring Shaquille O'Neal, Judd Nelson, Richard Roundtree, and directed by Kenneth Johnson. I'm Uncle Arnie, but people call me Uncle Arnie. (laughs) Stuart in L.A. Well, I'll be dipped in shit and rolled in breadcrumbs. This is Jacob, your host of Steel. You will be dipped in shit if you don't give me a good reason why I watched this. (laughs) What is this? Look, I had no idea what we were getting into by watching this movie. I had no idea this was actually a theatrically released movie. But (laughs) Steel, the character it is based on, is definitely connected to the Superman lore. I believe it was 1993 we had the death of Superman. Defeats Doomsday, but dies in the process. Huge storyline. Caused a huge bubble in the comics market with the retailers and all the speculators thinking they're going to be able to send their kids to college if they had this death of Superman. Hell, I bought it. Yeah, my brother who never owned a comic bought it. He was convinced it would pay for children's college. There you go. So after Superman was dead, they used that time while he was, I don't know, off in Krypton Heaven recuperating. They introduced four characters. All with this mystery is one of them the real Superman. There is a Superboy character that was supposed to be the clone from his DNA. There was a cyborg Superman. There is an alien Superman that looked like Kal-El. And there was Steel, who there was never a mystery if he was actually Superman. He was John Henry Irons. Now, tell me if this sounds familiar. John Henry Irons, he's a war profiteer. He sold weapons, and then he got a conscience and felt bad about it and decided he's going to fight crime. So he builds a robotic suit that he fights crime in. Sound familiar? Yeah. Iron Man? I thought you meant compared to the thing I just watched, but yeah. (laughs) Steel is very close to Iron Man with its concept. You know, this guy that sold weapons felt bad. 
became a construction worker. Superman had saved his life one time. So after Superman died, he's like, I want to do something good. I want to give back to Metropolis. And he built this suit because he was a tech genius and fought as this character named Steel, who actually had the Superman crest on his armor. We're not going to see that in this film, but this character, at least in the comics, very connected to the Superman lore. Well, he does have a tattoo. Shaq sports it on his bicep or whatever. There is a Man of Steel tattoo. It isn't completely removed. I think there's a few drop lines in the soundtrack to Superman, but none of that connective material is in this finished movie. I appreciate knowing that there was any connection at all, because I think if you picked up this movie, you might think it was a sequel to Kazam. Well, here's the thing with that tattoo. That's real. That is Shaquille O'Neal's real ink. He's a Superman fan and always loved Superman, and I guess this was his chance to play his hero. Hopefully his last chance. I don't know. He's retired from basketball now. He's got all kinds (laughs) of time for some pet projects. I really didn't know a whole lot about Shaquille O'Neal coming into this movie. I'm not a big sports guy. I, of course, did know he played basketball. Was he on the Bulls? No. He was on the Magic, and at, by this time, he was on the Lakers. Okay, that tells you how much I know about basketball. He was on the Dream Team, right? Well, yeah, you gotta look at this as the Dream Team. I think that really got basketball more and more popular. Yes, you had Magic Johnson, you had Larry Bird, you had the different rivalries that the fans were into, but I think when you got them in the Olympics in front of the world, I mean, we'd have Michael Jordan doing Space Jam. Charles Barkley, he was going out and doing commercials. I mean, you started to have these basketball players becoming entertainment personalities. Hey, Jordan and Bird, I had that Macintosh game. Don't forget about Dennis Rodman and Double Team with John claude Van Damme and Mickey Rourke. Eesh. Yeah, and Shaq, I do remember, was selling me double-decker tacos at Taco Bell around this time. Come on, were you buying Shaq Fu, his rap album? <laughs> and video game. I remember the video game more than the rap album. But yeah, they tried to market him. Look, I lived in Chicago at the time. It was all about Jordan. And Space Jam was a major event when that came out. This thing kind of came and went. It almost feels erased by history. What's funny is when I went to go get the film on Netflix, not only was it not available for rental, they didn't even have it as part of Shaq's resume. It was like they didn't want anyone to know this ever occurred. I found it on YouTube, guys. I don't know how you watched it, but whatever cut exists, I saw the one that is available on YouTube. Whatever version I watched, it was transferred from a VHS tape, and that VCR needed its tracking tuned. (laughs) (laughs) I bought this on DVD. It doesn't exist on DVD. It does. What, is this one of your convention buys? Nope. Because of the home theater, I really always try to get the theatrical experience when watching these movies now. And so I went to Amazon, which supports Warner Brothers Video On Demand. If you haven't heard of this, this is basically they print you a DVD in a burner when you want it. The only other thing I've bought this way, and someday I have a feeling now playing we'll get to it, is Legends of the Superheroes, that TV special with Adam West and Burt Ward and Superman and The Flash. Yeah, I've been dreading that one. Mm-hmm, it's still waiting for me in the dark, ready to shank me. Yep. <laughs> that Justice League movie ever comes out, I got a feeling we're going to watch it. Yeah. It's waiting for you in my DVD collection because of Warner Video On Demand. And yes, if you are one of the few foolish enough to buy this movie... They'll 
pop a blank into the disc writer, burn it for you, and mail it to you with some nice cover art. Did they email you to make sure this wasn't like an accidental buy? Because I can't imagine <laughs> anyone's purchased this. <laughs> I'm sure there are some Shaq fans that have rallied around this movie and superhero fans. I mean, let's face it. People really did like Superman. And if this is connected, I mean, we're covering it. It should be said. It's part of our Superman retrospective. I'll put it this bluntly. If you wanted Superman on screen, despite Tim Burton and Nick Cage's best efforts, this was the only way you were going to get him in a movie theater. He was on TV, but this was really, the 90s, very unkind to Superman as a media property. Well, I remember having the conversations and reading the Entertainment Weekly articles. Had the world moved past Superman? We liked dark heroes. We were dark times. Grunge music, goths, Gen X, we were dark, man. During a time of world peace, yes. <laughs> and economic prosperity unparalleled in our lifetime. <laughs> what were we so mad about? I mean, yeah, by comparison, 20 years ago, life was pretty good. But yeah, I was much angrier. <laughs> My parents wouldn't buy me a car. <laughs> but yeah, it was a dark time. And was Superman too light, too fluffy? I mentioned last podcast that right after Superman 4 quested for peace, the Salkins, they hadn't let their clutches go completely. They had the Superboy TV series that went for four years and two Superboys. And then they moved right on to Lois and Clark, the moonlighting romantic comedy spin on that. Something I have never to this day seen a single episode of. I don't remember watching it a whole lot, but wasn't it pretty popular? It was hugely popular. I remember watching it because it was Superman. And they had this interesting premise when it started. It almost felt like a sequel to Superboy because it was a very young Superman. He'd just gotten out of college. He couldn't control his powers. When he got nervous, which he did around Lois, he'd start to float and fly accidentally. Kind of a premature ejaculation joke. And this turned into a major hit, and there were a ton of guest stars, a lot of genre actors walked in and out. Bruce Campbell, we're talking about him over in our donation series. He showed up there, a lot of hammy actors showed up in Lois and Clark. And I, like the rest of the world, watched every episode up to their wedding. And their wedding, Lois and Clark did get married, it was the highest rated episode of the series, Nobody ever watched it again. <laughs> the very next episode, bottom in the ratings. It wasn't a steady decline. It was everyone watched the wedding and turned the show off forever. Lois and Clark, Terry Hatcher, and Dean Kane both got paid for a season that never got filmed because it was cheaper for the studio to just write checks and not make it. <laughs> Kind of what happens to Superman Lives. I mean, man, they dumped a lot of money into that project, too. And what is there to show for it? Uh, a Kevin Smith script that I've read. I read it, too. Ooh. <laughs> I've heard Kevin Smith talk about this script. The way he makes it sound, and this, again, this is just based on solely what he's saying, is that there were some ridiculous things that were required to be in this script. Giant spiders is one of those things I remembered. These were not his ideas. I mean, he is a comic book fan. He has his comic book store. He's written comics. Not good ones. I read that Black Cat shit. <laughs> not very good ones. There was actually a Kickstarter to raise money for a documentary on Superman Lives. I mean, pictures have come out since then of this light-up suit castings of Nick's Cage face for, I don't know, some kind of wigs or prosthetics. 
I mean, things have slowly leaked out how horrendous this film would have been. You know, when we did Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, all I wanted to see was Nick Cage in that black face pretending to be Ghost Rider on set. And I did get to see that, and it is amusing. But it's nothing compared to him in the Superman suit. <laughs> I feel bad for him. I mean, he named his son Kal-El, and yet he's stuck with Ghost Rider, not Superman. He's obviously a fan. Kevin Smith passing the blame as to why the script was so bad. I question a man who's constantly spilling stories about Hollywood, and yet he never has any blame in any of the stories he tells. It's always somebody else requiring something. Cop Out wasn't his fault? Cop Out was <laughs> Bruce Willis's fault. Bruce Willis, this man who he idolized, ruined Cop Out and threatened to beat him up on the set. And Superman lives. They demanded a giant spider. And this one I do believe, though, the studio mandated Superman won't fly. They will not allow him to fly. I guess flying is too... Expensive. No. <laughs> I believe the term they used was gay. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. They were afraid that a guy in tights flying around is a little too pixie-like. They wanted a tough macho. I think that that was the struggle, is that Superman is a Boy Scout. Superman is clean-cut. You can give him Nick Cage and all his scruffy weirdness. That just is soiling the property name. That's not converting it into something that makes sense. I mean, the problem with Nick Cage, and I haven't seen a frame of footage of him doing the performance. Maybe he had a good take on it. But he's not the image of Superman that we all have burned in our head thanks to Christopher Reeve. It just would go in contrast to everything we've seen and grown up on. And maybe someday we'll talk about Planet of the Apes, but this was supposed to be a movie written by Kevin Smith, directed by Tim Burton. When Planet of the Apes came out, Tim Burton had an ending on it that had been previously done in a Kevin Smith comic book, and Tim Burton said, I've never read a single word Kevin Smith has ever wrote. So I don't know what that says about the Superman property. <laughs> It sounds like there was major chaos, is what it really says. It sounds like as badly as Warner Brothers wanted to get Superman up and running with the same kind of box office clout that Batman had in the 90s, it was just a no-go. I think part of the problem also is, like we said last time, Reeve's shadow was so long, Christopher Reeve. And with Superman Lives, you know they talked about casting him in it. They were going to have him in the chair with the breather as Jor-El to pass the torch. Wow. I respect that they wanted to support and show their love for what Grieve had done. It is a very long shadow. I'm not sure that's the way to do it. Yeah, they ended up doing that. In the Smallville TV series, Christopher Reeve came on as a different character, as someone who would help Kellel find the way, and unfortunately Christopher Reeve passed away, and so the role was carried on by Margot Kidder. What? A different character, but his assistant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so confused and don't want to know the answer. That's what's so great about it. I don't understand and don't want to. Kind of like this week's movie? <laughs> A lot like this movie, although I do have a major question. Let's start it out with one, if you guys can answer it. Did they purposely disguise the connections here in Steel? Is the reason for that the fact that they were embarrassed by this, and they thought that Superman Lives was imminent, and that if people thought this was connected to that world in any way, it might hurt the box office? Basically, the same way that they buried Catwoman before Batman Begins came out. No, as you can imagine... There's not a lot of people talking about Steel. There's no commentary on my on-demand DVD. 
But what I've read is that Kenneth Johnson, the director of this movie, I know him primarily from the Alien Nation TV series. He's more of a TV guy than a movie guy. Yeah, he did a lot of the Hulk stuff, too. He had Incredible Hulk, Bionic Woman, V. I mean, yeah, he was a big TV creator, 70s, 80s. And this, I think, is remains his only theatrical film. Again, which I didn't realize was theatrical until they started <laughs> dropping swears in this. I had always thought this was a made-for-TV film. Well, because of his background with Incredible Hulk and everything, Johnson had turned down a lot of film adaptations of superheroes. But when he was approached to do Steel, he saw something different in Steel. He saw it a way to make it a story about a knight. And you'll see Steel's armor here looks nothing like the single image I saw on Wiki of the character from the comic. He's dressed up like Martin Lawrence in Black Knight. He's in full chainmail. And so Johnson got the concept, and the way he wanted to adapt it was, quote, a blue-collar Batman, unquote. And so everything he did was his own creation to that end, removing it almost entirely from the comic. It's like Catwoman in that way. The artist behind it just had his own vision for the character. It wasn't that they were intentionally eschewing Superman, so much as if it had been a Superman movie, Kenneth Johnson wouldn't have wanted to make it. Mm. Well, then uh, maybe we should talk about what he did make. Arnie, how about that plot? John Henry Irons is a seven-foot-tall weapons maker for the U.S. Army, developing weapons that can incapacitate but not kill the enemy. He works with Susan Sparks, a.k.a. Sparky, the main weapon designer, as well as ambitious Nathaniel Burke. When Burke tries to secure a promotion by impressing a senator and turning a sonic weapon to maximum power, it causes a ricochet that breaks Sparky's back and kills the senator. Burke is court-martialed and Irons, disgusted with being a warmonger, quits the army and returns home to his grandma's house in Los Angeles. But Irons doesn't know Burke also came to LA. He stole some plans for some of the army's super guns and has partnered with an L.A. arcade game tycoon and underground gun runner to make the guns. <laughs> Just so you know, quarters in that slot fund weapons and terrorism, kids. It's a good thing there's no more arcades these days. Must be why we have world peace. Maybe there's no more arcades because his arcade had the Batman Forever game. To advertise the guns to militants across the globe, Burke and his gangbangers use the guns to rob banks in Los Angeles. But Irons recognizes the guns being used, so he recruits now-crippled Sparky and his Uncle Joe to become vigilantes to take these weapons off the streets. Wearing a suit of armor and carrying a large hammer that contains numerous non-lethal weapons, like a super magnet, Irons takes to the streets as steel. Initially, the cops think Steel is the head of the gangs, as his guns work like those of the robbers, but soon Burke is outed when he tries to sell the guns to the highest bidder. A battle occurs, kind of. Steel wins, and the audience loses as credits roll. I noticed in the credits here that Quincy Jones plays a big role in producing this movie. You know, Michael Jackson, producer. Bad. Thriller. I mean, I don't know how involved he's been in the movies before, but... Why this one? I guess we're in the hands of novices here, but kind of the wrong person to even shepherd this project. I don't know. I appreciated all the funk on the soundtrack. <laughs> Quincy Jones had a big part in 90s entertainment. I mean, yes, he got his start in music, 
And he would still continue to work with musicians like rapper Shaquille O'Neal. But I would say his biggest thing, and I knew this going in before Steel, I didn't realize he was involved, but he created the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air TV series. And like it or hate it, it was a big hit for NBC from 90 to 96. I read a quote where he was talking about wanting to create positive role models for black people. And I think that's admirable. For whatever we're going to say about this movie... The idea of giving the screen a black superhero would have been a novelty at this point. I think we had had Meteor Man and Blade and Spawn were imminent, but I don't even think they were on the screen as of yet. But the thing is, when you want to inspire people, you got to make sure you look good. I'm going to take a page out of my own life to share with you in this example. When I ran for fifth grade student council, I thought I could win by wrapping a towel around my neck and calling myself Super Stewart and performing a skit in front of the class in which I would deliver all the things that the school was deficient in. And Arnie, you were a part of this. I don't know if you remember it or not, but you were part of the quote-unquote grateful classmates that would be receiving all of my super gifts when I unveiled this. I have been part of many a Super Stewart scheme in my day. <laughs> and I remember this one. You roped me into it with some great promises about how wonderful it would be. You gave me my lines and told me you'd give me a computer. And I'd go, oh boy, new computers! And instead, you come up on stage and you hand me an overhead projector and say, here's your computer! Yeah, I just look like a fool. What made me so mad was when I handed it to you, you wouldn't say anything. I think you might have grunted, but uh, you wouldn't even say a line. I was just left Listen, there. Listen, you were going down. I was not <laughs> going to go down with you by letting the school think I thought that was a computer. I can feel for Shaquille O'Neal here when he's up here on screen in this ridiculous metal suit trying to pretend that he's the next Superman here. I know what it feels like to try and fail in that role. So I will be as kind to Steel as I can, knowing full well it's going to be a tough job. This director came from TV. We had Quincy Jones, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Talk about how things look, Stuart. This one looks and feels, uh, as we get into the storyline, it almost feels sitcom-y at times. You're right. It would feel like something I would expect to see on a made-for-TV movie, which were much more prevalent in the 90s. You would just think that, yeah, Fox or somebody would knock this one out really cheap. If it were not Shaquille O'Neal... And I have to remind myself that he was a very popular personality, if not a popular movie star, then yeah, this would easily have been on television and nowhere else. Really, I blame Space Jam. It was the fact that Jordan had had such a big hit with Space Jam that they thought that they could replicate it. Well, this did come a year after Kazam. And Kazam didn't make its money back. <laughs> it didn't do very well. So I think they knew a little bit going in that it was an uphill battle with a Shaquille O'Neal film. But you guys say TV. I'll say I've seen a lot of Kenneth Johnson TV movies. I watched Alien Nation faithfully on TV and in theaters. But they did give this $16 million. And I will say we've seen 90s TV movies. We saw the mind rape of Generation X. This isn't much for a theatrical film, but it's better than Generation X in looks. They spent their money wisely. What you have here is just a cheap movie where they looked and said, what did Kazam make? Kazam made $18 million. Okay, 
we're going to give Shaq $16 million for steel, and then we'll make $2 million. <laughs> so I think that this is just a low-risk, easy-return kind of situation. Even in the 90s, $16 million was not much for a film to go in theaters, and it didn't take much to earn $16 million back, especially when you take home video into account. Preview. Steel didn't get it back, even when you take home video into account. <laughs> it didn't get home video. <laughs> At least not DVD. <laughs> it's a YouTube project. I don't know how you can collect residuals from that, but I guess I owe the man a quarter. <laughs> Put it in the Batman Forever slot. The problem I have with this, though, is we've seen this type of movie, the low-budget movie. Hell, Blade was kind of this mold, right? Where you take a low-budget but you see if you can make something out of it. I have to think in the hands of a different director and a different star, everything else could have gone a little better. But when you bring in a TV director, you get a basketball player as your star. All of this could still work, but your villain is Judd Nelson? (laughs) (laughs) We went from Ducky and Pretty in Pink to Breakfast Club. They're just going through the Brat Packers here. I'm really hoping that Molly Ringwall will turn up as some villainess next time. Maybe Superman's mom and Man of Steel. But that is where I realized there was going to be a problem, because take what you will, Stephen Dorff had some menace in Blade, and here, Judd Nelson, at this time, I think he was still on Suddenly Susan, that TV show of Brooke Shields. Come on, he had a little bit of street cred. He was the token white dude in New Jack City, which is a really fun black exploitation 90s movie. Sure, in early 90s, but this is 97. I'm telling you, suddenly Susan is where it was at. <laughs> Six years after New Jack City, this is what it buys you. Hey, it's, you know, dollar dollar bills, y'all. Cream rules the world, whatever that expression is. <laughs> but I will say I did have hope when I was watching the opening credits They may be bringing in Judd Nelson as the white bad guy and Shaquille O'Neal as the black good guy. But Richard Roundtree, come on, Shaft. He was in one of the few good episodes of the Blade TV series, which I did review every episode of at the (laughs) Vaganza Media Gazette. And this was right around the time, it should be said, Tarantino had really popularized the idea of going back to black exploitation. This movie came out the same year as Jackie Brown. There was a lot of old black exploitation stars getting a new lease on life. He would have just been in Tim Burton's Mars Attacks, in fact. So, yeah, it's fun to bring that back. If this movie has any characteristic at all, it is the fact that they're going for that old school vibe. And I wish it had more of it, quite frankly. A lot of it just feels really generic. I wish it felt more like a street movie, but it doesn't really have a whole lot connected with Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society or any of those 90s gang pictures, even though... It tries to emulate them. It's kind of that way by way of Fat Albert. There's something kitty about it. I think we need to remind ourselves, as I did with Supergirl, as we get into this movie, we're not the audience for this. This was made for children. Or at least it was decided at some point in the production that the only people that would rally around it are people under the age of 13. Is that why the first line in the film is, Thought I smelt some nuts roasting? Hey, you say under the age of 13. This film is PG-13. What? They say shit in it twice. Wow, that's crazy to me. 
Violence and language, thanks to our MPAA. Oh, come on. Goonies was much worse than this, and that was... Well, they didn't have PG-13 back then. I'm saying this is a pretty inoffensive film. Definitely. And I would say that if anyone should watch it, that's people probably not listening to this show. But, you know, kiddie movies, I kept in mind for Supergirl, reminding myself of what it feels like to embarrass yourself as Superman. I'm thinking about as a child who looked up to Shaq as a basketball star. I'm trying to give this movie the perspective as it starts, because it certainly doesn't earn it at any time, but trying to give it a perspective of who might enjoy it, even though I know I'm going to hate it, pretty much (laughs) right from the get-go. Well, right from the get-go, probably going to cut the feet out from under me, but I'm sort of impressed when it opens up. (laughs) You like laser beams? I do like laser beams. I'm going to say that right now. I like the setup of this a little bit. It's not a terrible setup. Admittedly, Shaq as a intelligent weapons maker who's developing alloys for super guns, it's a stretch. We've seen stretches before. I believe Shaq is an alloy developer as much as I believe Denise Richards is a nuclear physicist. But having all these people working together for the army developing super guns and Judd Nelson is part of the team and gunning for a promotion. It's an intriguing way to set it up in an inoffensive manner. They're not guns. It should be said they have some lame sonic cannons or what they call And I've seen this device before, Minority Report. They used them because that was set in a society where murder was outlawed. And so they had to come up with weapons that had stunning powers but couldn't actually kill someone. So. These things kind of have it both ways, right? They can make things blow up, they can stop a tank, but if it actually zaps a person, they just kind of fall over. I mean, it's like the nerf version of weapons of mass destruction. I always want to call him Shaq. John Steele, whatever. He's always Shaq to me in this film. He's supposed to be developing non-lethal weapons, so instead of blowing up the tank, you use a laser to cut its tire tracks from underneath it. You have these sonic weapons to blow people back and knock them out instead of killing them. So he develops weapons that don't kill because he doesn't want to kill. They only kill when some jerk turns the power all the way up. I mean, they shouldn't have been inside a crumbling building firing the weapon to begin with. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of everyone's fault, really. I mean, no, it's the fault of the guy who takes it past the parameters. If you're taking a car for a test drive and then you decide to see if the car can do 160 and you crash and kill somebody, are you going to say, It's everyone's fault. You know, the dealer shouldn't have given him the keys, and the car shouldn't have been able to go that fast. (laughs) And this is what's so crazy. So, Burke, you're right, Arnie. He's the bad guy. He turned it up to 11. He killed people. He crippled Sparks. He's found guilty. It's not like he's let off. It's not like he gets away. He is found guilty, kicked out of the military, and then John, who wants to make non-lethal weapons, who has made him, who's making war more peaceful, is like, uh... This weapons thing is, is too dangerous. I'm out of here. He has won. Like, if this was a actual movie, it'd be like A-Team. Burke would spin things around and John would be in trouble. I went with this. You went with this? His weapon crippled his friend Sparky. And he was trying to be a pacifist warmonger. Realized that that doesn't work. His weapons would always hurt people despite his best intentions. And so he quits. It sounds funny, really, when you say it that way. I mean, he should have just designed a bubble machine or something. I mean, yes, (laughs) weapons are designed to hurt by design. (laughs) 
I can appreciate that you might want to limit the number of deaths, that you might want to be micro-specific with your targeting. Come on, you can never make a bubble gun in the U.S. military. That is just never going to work. And he has a crush on Sparky. Sparky has eyes for him. It's here even in these opening scenes. She's complimenting the fact that he's made a gun barrel that doesn't overheat. I think there's a veiled sexual metaphor in (laughs) all of this G-rated talk here. But anyway, yes, it is the fact that Sparky is crippled that makes him want to leave the military and go back to South Central. And I would say that if you had a different actor in your lead role, this might have actually played. Not only is Sparky crippled in this opening scene, but the opening scene itself is crippled by Shaq's performance. Come on, you're not convinced by Nathaniel, no! Sparky! (laughs) You're not one over that? You don't have a cheer rolling down your cheek? I think Shaq did take some correspondence acting classes from Eric Freeman of Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. He's definitely studied the eyebrow raising. (laughs) It's like when Jordan went to go play baseball. Like, you just used to be on top, and now you are just really just embarrassing here. You're right, Arnie. Put Eddie Murphy or a comedian in here. I just kept thinking... Somebody that was funny, someone that can ad-lib and take these kind of corny setups and find some genuinely funny things in it, I think that's what you needed here. I would have much rather had someone short, dumpy, and funny than this jolly black giant. Yeah, Jamie Foxx, one of the Wayne brothers, would have been popular at the time. I go the other way. I wouldn't go comedy. I would think more action. You said Eddie Murphy, and yes, he's funny, but... He's almost perfect in that he also pulled off action in 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop and several other films. They were funny films, but they also had exciting action. I'm thinking you get Wesley Snipes in here, and he could really sell me the pathos of someone who didn't want to hurt someone and was feeling guilty that they hurt their best friend. Wesley, before his prison stint, could do dramatic. Yeah, I like Wesley Snipes. I don't feel like he needs to do every black action movie, but, you know, he's better than Mario Van Peebles. I mean, I think he had Solo going on around this time. If you want to go the complete opposite direction, what about Spike Lee in this role? Go from the tallest black man to the shortest, other than Gary (laughs) Coleman. But I think that Spike Lee could have pulled this off. Yeah, it would have been a way to play it. Again, comedy. I feel like this is an inherently silly scenario. If they wanted it to be much darker... You needed to fire everyone and start over. But if you could only make one choice that's different than the one made here, the key would be to get rid of Shaq. He is a dead weight to this film. I have to think, with Quincy Jones producing 1997, I have to think they approached Will Smith. And imagine that this movie could have been with an extra zero in the budget and Will Smith in the lead. Yeah, but he was busy doing Men in Black. Admittedly. But if they'd pulled that off, we might be having a whole separate Steel retrospective with Steel 5 coming out this summer. I don't know. I think I still probably wouldn't be totally cool with it. I mean, I'm not sure this would have saved the movie. It would have helped the movie to have me laughing. Because truly, I'll laugh at Shaq, but I'll never laugh with him in this film. The funny moments are when Shaq is trying to be tough. Oh, there are others, like when he returns home and his grandma is trying to mix soul food with Creole... This is where I'm talking about sitcom-level storytelling here. Come on. Grandma's going to open, what is it, an Italian soul food restaurant? Black and blue? (laughs) Talk quiet, guys, or we'll knock down the souffle. 
Call me crazy, but I actually wanted to try that. More than I wanted to finish the movie, <laughs> I would have rather spent the next 90 minutes hanging out with Odessa, eating her hominy souffle. Yeah, I would have totally been down with the catfish, with the whatever. This is very much a sitcom scenario here. Sitcom-level writing, jokes, performances, all very hammy. But, you know, there's something kind of fun about Odessa. I feel like... Irma P. Hall, she was the funniest thing about the Coen Brothers movie, The Lady Killers. I think she's got something here, but it's weak material, and she doesn't rise above it. And should be pointed out, as Shaq is trying to find his footing, and, you know, he, they make the joke he can't throw the free throws at the pickup basketball game, he finally gets a job at the Metalworks. They got a song here, and it's I'm Superman. So they do put in here early the idea that we're supposed to be thinking at some point, at this point, knowing nothing about steel, at some point, I believe a meteorite from Krypton is going to land in the junkyard and change his fortune. I am waiting for the magic transformation, the radioactive rays, whatever it's going to be. But truly, he is never getting that moment. He is super already. He's already got super strength. Yeah, that's kind of implied there. Is it because he's a giant or does he have even other preternatural strength, something going on, like Nadine and Twin Peaks? I don't know, but he does smash telephones and pull doors off their hinges of his own accord. But I have to ask, he's back in L.A. I was a little surprised. I honestly thought he might be going to Metropolis. When they call it out as pure Los Angeles, little disappointing. But... Is it coincidence that Nathaniel also goes to Los Angeles, or is it Nathaniel is following him for revenge? No, that's where Big Willie is. Yes. Dantastic Arcade is selling firearms to gangbangers. Firearms smuggled in the back of the game cabinets. Like, not separate. They are putting <laughs> AK-47s inside of Pac-Man. Now I imagine Shaq throwing all the video games into the sun, even the big nets. You know, I don't know where this movie is going, but yes, there's already an illegal arms thing going on. What Burke wants to do is up the ante. He was allowed to walk away not only with his life, but with a CD-ROM of their top-secret weapons plans. And so now they're just going to make him here at the arcade, just on-premises. Instead of coin-ops, they're going to make more sonic cannons. A mistake this movie makes is having that prologue in the military. I guess it's true to the character, but to me, I feel like you start it here, in L.A. You have this guy already be in the metalworks, or maybe he's a cop. Maybe he's dealing with street gang violence in some way, and then something happens to motivate him to become Steel. It's crazy the fact that they have to have two women get crushed in order to motivate him to start thinking bigger here. But they do it twice. Oh, the girl I like gets injured here when this lady cop is out on patrol with him and they run into his weapons. God help me, I'm defending this film again. Uh-oh. I think it's a classical storytelling structure that a person makes a mistake and spends the rest of the story atoning for that mistake. His mistake was he helped develop super weapons. Non-lethal super weapons. I just want to, again, call that out. Yes. It first crushes his girlfriend's spine, and then when he sees his weapons out on the street, he is the one who has to make it right. That means more to me than just a gangbanger who decides I'm going to clean up the streets by putting on a suit. 
I like that he is atoning for his own mistake and going after his own creation. It's the Frankenstein story. Now, I don't know if he's atoning for his own mistake. We see Charles Napier as this army colonel, and Shaq just calls him up out of the blue. Hey, did you give my weapons to anyone? You guys selling those? Not that it's a Frankenstein thing, that his weapons are being misused, yes, and that's what he wants to stop. Again, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with these weapons, unless you're going to crank them up to 11 and use them to rob banks. <laughs> a drive-by bank robbery. They don't even have to get out of the Hummer. <laughs> I do love that about this. It's very convenient. It's very L.A. Yes, very L.A. I get you that, yes, if he created something, he has to be the one to clean it up. That's compelling, but we do not buy that he created them. I think that's the real problem, is that those scenes where he is supposed to have mastered this technology, I mean, that's just flat-footed. You would buy Shaq more. If it's got to be Shaq, you would buy it more if he was the average Joe down at the metal shop who has been seeing this happen to his neighborhood and wants to do something about it. I don't buy him as a sophisticated weapons manufacturer. It's a real inhibitor to going with this premise. And they only ask us to believe it once, admittedly. At no other point does he develop anything. He stands around while people around him develop stuff. He does pound some steel to build his suit, but yeah. It's all sparky, though. Everything becomes about sparky. You know, all right, so there's this woman that she makes a joke about last time we were in the car and gives him a wink. Gone. I mean, talk about bad writing. You just make Sparky the cop, right? And now Sparky has a reason to be in L.A., and he doesn't have to go to the VA hospital in St. Louis to drag her back into this trap. How inspiring is this? Why are these windows so dirty? I'm going to punch this window out. It's so dirty. (laughs) Oh, man, yes. It really is progressive. It's a progressive idea that we're going to have someone in a wheelchair be a superhero or work on a superhero team. I think that that was some kind of first, right? Well, actually, here is my theory. They actually took this from another DC character, Barbara Gordon, who was Batgirl, and she was shot by the Joker. We reviewed that on Books and Nachos, Arnie and I, in The Killing Joke. And she is crippled in a wheelchair, and she becomes the Oracle for the DC Universe, where she's behind the scenes, she's a master hacker, she's running communication, she's doing all this stuff behind the scenes in a wheelchair. And I really feel like they took that character and put her into Sparky here. That's exactly what they did. It is, the creators have said they just took Oracle and gave her a different name. You know, there feels like there is a lot more Batman than Superman in this. I mean, Charles Napier ends up feeling like Commissioner Gordon. They call him and imitate other people. He never knows who the real Steel is, but he's sort of an ally. I mean, at one point, there's this teenager that's also living with Grandma, and he wants to be Robin when he gets a wind of this. I mean, they know that Batman is cooler in 1997 than Superman. And so, even though they're showing close-ups of Man of Steel tattoos and playing it over the soundtrack, I really feel like the movie, yeah, they're closer to getting... Well, maybe it's Batman and Robin, but at least that character. But what's disappointing to me is we go through an hour of this movie with basically the same setup. We see Sparky's back get broken. Okay. Then we see Shaq working in the metalworks. Okay. We see Nathaniel making guns and killing his cronies who help him because they aren't helping him enough. I mean, he's practically a Darth Vader of L.A. But all the while, what I'm not seeing is steel. It's a long haul. 
it's a Superman 1 kind of haul. I mean, it took 45 minutes, 50 minutes to see Christopher Reeve in the tights, so I think that they felt like they had that room to play with steel. They don't have Marlon Brando here. They don't have someone with the capability of Christopher Reeve. They got Richard Roundtree. And Judd Nelson, who in the later seasons of Suddenly Susan would be as big as Brando. Yes, yes. I agree with you. I was incredibly impatient with how long it took to create Steel. I mean, Act 2 should have been there. I'm Steel, right? The whole point of the Act 1 is that you have the origin so that Act 2 can be about him exploring who he is. It doesn't go that way. The first action scene in the movie is Shaq just running around in the train yard. And I feel like that was just kind of a throwback to the actual John Henry folk hero. They just felt like they had to have a scene with John Henry in trains, but it really does nothing. I kept waiting. I was sure that this would be where the kryptonite fell out of the train and he would become Superman. I just can't tell you how long I spent with this movie waiting for him to turn magical before I realized they were never going to do it. I did like the train chase. I think that is the best action scene in the whole movie. It's not great, but it's the best action scene in the whole movie. I will give. Kenneth Johnson, some credit for some good camera angles. I like the high angle above the train looking down where you see Shaq on one side and his prey on the other. I like the suspense of as they run between all the train cars, is this the car that's going to collapse and crush them? Sadly, no one gets crushed. And I like that at the end, Shaq catches the guy only to get shot from behind. Like's a strong word, but... What does it say about the movie that the best action is before he becomes a superhero? I mean, I think that's damnation, Arnie. I think that you're telling us how badly a superhero Steel is going to turn out to be, that this is the best it gets. Well, yes, but I'm also paying it a half-hearted compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm sure they're appreciative of that. The one thing that I never bought, again, I'm not the sports guy, but basketball players... They're fast, but they're not sprinters, right? They have to run up and down the court for four quarters. Well, he's a center, and centers particularly, a center is your tallest guy because he's going to be going in for rebounds. He's got to do the jump ball at the beginning of the game. Here we are at Sports Center all of a sudden. You got your forwards who are sprinting back and forth, but not your centers. Your centers are big guys that usually kind of just lumber back and forth. Yeah, lumber is the perfect word I would use for what Shaq does in this film. During this chase, He never really seems to pick up much speed. He's huge, so he's got long strides, but I never feel he's giving his all. He's kind of jogging, and maybe because he's so big. Dude's like 350 pounds. Yeah. (laughs) It's all muscle, but that's still a lot. And they couldn't get a stunt double for him. Every scene is Shaq because there was no stunt double that big. Yeah, again, another reason why, I mean, I guess they would have had no funding at all if they had recast, but it's the reason why you don't make Shaq into a movie star. He's just not that guy. I mean, it's just clumsy. Everything about this movie is clumsy, and his performance in these action moments are really clumsy. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff he barely does, like when he has to get over small fences, he kind of rolls over them. The scene in the train yard, he gets up at the top, And there's a barbed wire fence. And I'm honestly kind of into the scene. I'm like, oh, shit. How is he going to get over the barbed wire fence? They never show us. Just next scene, he's over. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe the worst technical aspect of this movie 
is the fact that these scenes, the way that they're put together, not only shots to create action, it's just random. You just never know what they're going to fling at you. There feels to be no shape to this movie at all. Or rather, it feels like they shot a whole bunch of stuff and then just kind of threw it into a final edit. There's no crafting of this story here. I mean, one scene could just as appear in another place that it does in this time frame. This character, Martin, is it his brother? Or cousin. They share the same grandma. That's all I could figure out. Right. They were both raised by the same mother figure, although who their fathers are in relation to each other, we'll never know. But his scenes, he comes in and out of this story. I keep waiting for what they're going to do to him. They act like they're going to make him a traitor. It seems to me that because he is so materialistic and does this hilarious spin about dollar dollar bills, y'all, and I want cream and all of this, that he is going to go work for this arcade company and get, I think, brainwashed or something. They're going to do something to him with the arcade games that are going to make him on Judd Nelson's side and turn against Shaq. Or at the very least, he's going to frame Shaq, right? He's going to do something. You could take all of these Martin scenes out and it would affect the storyline in no way. You must have seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, Stuart, because that's what they do. They use these arcades and skateboards to recruit kids to become ninjas. Not here, though. I thought they were just going to go for that. No, it never happens. And I never thought he was going to be turned because this didn't seem like that kind of movie to have that level of depth, which isn't very deep. I thought he was going to be a hostage. So we'll get there when we get there. But the fact that he's a hostage and then also they use Sparky as a hostage. It's redundant. Yeah, I think that they just pulled back. I think because the emphasis clearly was to give young kids a role model, they didn't want to make the young characters bad. I mean, they obviously do have a street gang here, and they are a ridiculous crew. Slats, I think, is their leader. The guy with the eye patch is, I think, the one in charge here. But none of those people are punished or that bad. Ultimately, everything that they do is held responsible by the fact that Judd Nelson made them do it, right? I mean, he's the real enemy. All these kids, they're pawns. And I think that they just don't want to give us a teenage villain, like we would have seen in some of these Boys in the Hood movies. Well, we do finally get a villain when Steel shows up in a ridiculous costume, but he fights a mugger who holds up, what, the Monopoly Man and his wife? How many times have we seen this? We've seen it in Ghost Rider. We've seen it in Catwoman. It's always the bad ones, isn't it? Where you start off the first act, which in this case is almost an hour long, is the person in their normal life uncovering a bad situation. The second act is they get their powers, and now they have to go stop random crimes. Yeah, but this is no ordinary crime. That's John Hawks. That's an uh, Oscar-nominated actor. I really laughed when I saw who it was. He was on Deadwood and has done a lot of great independent work. I love this actor. It was hilarious to see what must be one of his first roles. What I find hilarious is when we finally get to see Steele go up, up, and away. He stops this mugging and, you know, returns the purse to the aristocratic lady, and then he goes up an escalator backwards. You be cool now. Like, I found that hilarious. Like, Stuart, you're talking about just random scenes shot and put together. Like, come on. He's going up an escalator at this point. Like, this is your superhero. Can't even walk up the stairs. <laughs> he probably can't bend his knees. That suit. <laughs> that suit. That awful, awful suit. They removed his cape and they removed the S from the chest is what I read. 
But come on, they put him in a suit of armor like I see when I go to the cheap furniture stores. <laughs> they just need the mask with the vents on it instead of the mask they give him. And why wear a mask? I have a question. I'm watching this movie. How many seven-foot men are there walking around? Just one? So who do you think's the seven-foot man in the mask? But Artie, the crazy thing isn't that the seven-foot black dude in L.A. has a mask. It's that it only covers half his face. <laughs> like, you just shoot him in the mouth and he's dead. Or you know what? Maybe if you covered your whole body, maybe there is a seven-foot white dude and a seven-foot black dude. And there's a seven-foot Chinese basketball player out there in the NBA right now. At least there would be some secret identity. But no, you know the one seven-foot black dude in L.A., you know who Steel is now. Hey, okay, let me tell you, I was confused for a minute. It was ten years too early. But at one point, he does this finger waggle, and I'm like, it's Dikembe Mutombo! <laughs> I do love that finger wag in this film. <laughs> yeah, come on, guys. You can ask all these questions, but I do think that the movie knows. They just refuse to answer them. What they do is they pitch it at a different volume. They just say, this is for kids. This is kid logic. This is something that belongs on Nickelodeon or Disney Channel. That level of sophistication. They dodged the bullet, as it were with all of this ridiculousness, by saying, yeah, isn't that silly? I mean, they know it. And so they try to play it that way. And I think, get Keenan and Kel in this. Make it Good Burger. Good Burger came out this year. Yeah, I feel like just make it that. Pretty sure Shaq was in Good Burger. I haven't gotten to that one yet, but I do make a point of one day getting to Good Burger. But yeah, just make it a kid's film. You know, that was the solution as we get to this middle part, and they're so obviously pranking and mugging, to just say, okay, make this about children. Make it about Martin. Martin should have been the one to become Steel. Make it a child fantasy if it's pitched at children. And you're right. I mean, you look at what Jacob's quoted a couple times now, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Admittedly, I'm pretty sure that was PG, not PG-13, but it is the right audience to shoot this for. And even if you're going for the slightly older kids, I remember Mutant Ninja Turtles having some emotional depth as one of them was a little bit depressed and had to, you know, grow up and deal with something or other. But... To have Martin go through that Mutant Ninja Turtles thing would be better than what we get, which is a whole lot of nothing. The biggest character development scene we get is when Sparky falls out of her chair and our hero <laughs> just stands there and watches her crawl back to it. <laughs> I do feel like I spend most of the movie watching Sparky. How is Sparky going to handle all of this? I love the fact that like he takes her out of the VA hospital and brings her to a junkyard. Like That's the solution. And he's like, look, I made you a toilet. I would be really <laughs> depressed if I were Sparky. And I don't know that if I fell out of my chair, I would have the strength to pull myself back <laughs> up and continue on with this project. I mean, it's a really miserable prospect. They think you're going to be trapped in a junkyard with Shaquille O'Neal and Richard Roundtree trying to make this superhero. I feel for her. It's painful. And I guess we're to believe that she goes on because she loves Shaq. And the way that they write that is they do these cute little E.T. finger touches or something. Yeah, I was trying to think if it was him trying to heal her with the E.T. finger touch or... <laughs> What was going on there? Uh, Again, adolescent. You'd understand it more if they were playground kids. But this has, you know, no more heat than, I guess, April O'Neil and the Ninja Turtles. I think they had more heat. I do wonder, to get a little political, if they were afraid to have an interracial relationship. I know it was the late 90s, but in a kid's film, I don't know. 
And this was their way of showing, hey, they were friends. If this was a more adult movie, they would have just been straight up lovers. Well, why not have it be a black woman? I mean, why go interracial? I think the reason is is because Quincy Jones is in an interracial relationship, and maybe he wanted to make that in a positive light. Maybe he felt like there hadn't been enough of that on screen. But who was this chick? I think she was the Gillian Anderson replacement in X-Files, but she's nobody. Get a black woman. That actually kind of bothered me. I mean, the one thing I'll say is I've become more aware, thanks to behind-the-scenes interviews with Wesley Snipes and the like, of black actors wanting to promote black relationships on screen, and they often find it insulting that the black man always has to go after the white woman, and I'm proud of Blade for giving Wesley a black woman to go after in here. This did, because of my knowledge of that, feel a little bit disappointing. That Are they trying to pander to a white audience? I mean, the only white character other than Sparky is the bad guys. <laughs> but I think that you could have gotten an African-American actress in there and just made a stronger statement. Yeah, just make it the lady cop. I liked her well enough. I mean, why not have her? Again, why do those two things? That should have only been one injury to one woman. And go with whichever one makes the most sense. As long as we got to see Shaq induct her by carrying her out of that hospital. (laughs) I have a question about this junkyard. So Sparky's hanging out in the junkyard with Uncle Joe Shaft. And he's talking about how things just fall off trucks all the time. He's got this spanking new computer. Just fell off a truck. Is he just straight up stealing stuff? Are you like stolen goods? <laughs> I took it as stolen, yes. But I didn't take it that he was stealing it, but that he knew someone who would. Yeah, you could definitely read it that way. He definitely had some devilishness in his eyes. Maybe it's just because I know him as Shaft, but I just felt like he had more moxie than this movie was willing to give him. So we get this idea that Big Willie and Burke are up to something. Hey, I need to what? What is it? A week to get this internet site up. They'll be ready to go to get a website going. And they're using Adobe Aspire. The product is given front frame. I think Adobe should sue them. (laughs) So they're basically, they want to put on a show, right? They want to put on an advertisement, a commercial for their weapons to sell them to people? This was a surprise that, yes, they stage a robbery of the Federal Reserve in downtown Los Angeles. Not because they want money. They make a big point later of saying stealing money means nothing. What they want to do is have all of these gangs throughout the world, everything from skinheads, literal skinheads, white supremacists, to Colombian drug lords, see what these weapons can do that he's developed, and come to L.A. to try and buy them off of him. I suppose it's kind of ingenious, really. Oh, the early days of the internet. (laughs) I just love that they just have a website you go to. I think one of the skinheads even say, there's more to the internet than just porn. (laughs) Yes, they do. They have to wait. There's a countdown when these weapons are going to go on sale. They got to wait to the last second to buy them. It's eBay. I'm telling you. Yeah, I always laugh at early, shall we say, progressive uses of the internet in films. But it's certainly humorous looking back. They could have just Craigslisted these weapons and been fine. I love that they're robbing banks as promo for videos that they couldn't even put on the internet. I don't know how the Colombian drug lords are seeing the local L.A. news. With your 19.6 modem, that would take months to download. And then it would look like an animated GIF. It would be four frames repeating. (laughs) I don't know your technical language, but I'll agree with you. It's all kinds of silly, but 
I want Burke to get worse is the problem is I wanted him to have a master plan that was worth something here. I mean, he's manipulating all these people. He's got all of these weapons. I'm wanting to see what the focus is. I'm not really sure that even when I understand that money's not important, that power's important, it's not like he's asking these people to come work for him. They're paying him, and then they're going away. I mean, he isn't creating an army. I think I would be cooler with the movie if he was amassing power rather than amassing money. He's pissing off a lot of evil people. His plan is they're going to have to rent the weapons. Like, they're going to have to recharge them every week, and they're going to have to pay him money to recharge them. Is that the plan? That's what he says. Yeah. Oh, wow, I missed out on that. (laughs) Yeah, the whole idea is just to keep them hooked. You know, it's like a cell phone contract or something. Like, you just can't get out of it without (laughs) paying a lot of money. You just bought something that's no good if you can't pay the monthly maintenance for it. That's the plan. But again, if this is a character about power, and he was defined from the very first scene as always wanting more power than he could wield, I just feel like this is a dumb rewrite. You know, I wanted to really understand his relationship with Slats and how he's manipulating these gangs. You know, they want to make that seem so nefarious that the man is keeping these kids oppressed. He tricks them into eating pork. Which, you know, underlined all of that. They don't say it, but that was a kind of Muslim, black, social conscious 60s thing. I mean, that is, I guess, a perversion of sorts that, you know, to eat that pork mess, as it's so eloquently put, would be a betrayal of religious beliefs. And I guess I felt like this movie would be stronger if it focused on the teenage characters. Since it's so obviously kitty. if the plot could be more about slats and Cutter, and all these kids, and how they've been duped into thinking they were powerful by being given these sonic cannons and running around L.A., when in fact they were just going to end up being target practice in the climax, I think that's a stronger kid film than what we get here. But maybe it just doesn't have enough steel. They keep working in fight scenes for steel to show off in. And here with this Federal Reserve, he saves a cop that is about to be crushed by a falling chopper. Hey, I like it when Steel puts the hammer down and says it's hammer time. And Do you know he has a hammer? Yeah, I thought it was funny the fifth time. I do love that he has a magnet where, like, knives and guns stick to his butt at one point. I like that Richard Roundtree likes the shaft. How could he not? I mean, his whole career now is still being based on that movie from 1971, poor guy. But eventually they got to get to, you know, some kind of turn of character. It's obvious to everyone that this seven-foot-tall brother from South Central must be the guy that just came home from the military. And so for reasons not entirely clear, Burke finds him and plants a gun in the basement and then calls the cops so that Shaq ends up in jail. Well, the cops kind of thought maybe he's working with these criminals because his gun does the same thing as their guns. And so we've seen the cops going after him. At one point, there's a lineup, and they bring back that rich couple to try to finger him, and they refuse. Which, again, I find funny. He is the tallest guy in that lineup. There is only one possible choice. But no, they need someone to act as a witness to arrest him. But yeah, so Burke has to frame him. And it makes Grandma Souffle fall flat again. Yeah, again, sitcom, Nickelodeon humor. Maybe if I were eight or nine, I'd think this was really funny stuff. But I think that it's hard when you have a grown adult like Shaq playing such a doofus. And me as an adult expecting to think he's a hero. You know, I'm just taken back to Super Stewart with a towel around my neck. It just, it's embarrassing for everyone. I wish that that scene where the cops come and get him 
would have been played a little bit more, like we don't know who's busting in. But it's quite obviously SWAT, and Shaq's beating him in the face with frying pans and things. If nothing else, Steel respects the law, and he should have realized these aren't Nathaniel's guys, it's... It is the LAPD, and he's black. So, I mean, there's reasons for him to fight back if he knows it's the cops. Yeah, now he could kill people and get away with it by bearing a glove. What I really wanted was for Marcus to come into focus in this, and I think they did it. I'm willing to bet there's a deleted scene or something, because he gets a funny look on his face when the SWAT team finds the sonic cannon in the basement. Well, how did it get there? No one I know saw it put there. Shaq didn't have the weapon. How did a basement get in L.A.? Well, true enough, but to stay on the point, Marcus was working for Judd Nelson, so why not have him do this, either brainwashed or voluntarily, to prove himself? Why not give Marcus a storyline by having him betray his friend? Why not have him do something that inadvertently puts Shaq in jail? I think that would be a stronger connection to have at this point in the movie. You don't even have to have Marcus be the bad guy. We learn earlier on that he's having troubles with gangs. Have Burke go, hey, here, I want to give this to you. I know you're having trouble. Take this home for some protection and inadvertently frame Steel. Where I think it falls flattest is in this final showdown, though. At the gun auction that Shaq crashes, they've triangulated the radio that he uses and gotten sparky and... I'm expecting something spectacular for the showdown, and... Have you been watching the film? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I just expected more, and all I get is literally Shaq standing still while he pushes buttons on the hammer and calls things to him, and he doesn't even defeat Nathaniel. Nathaniel defeats himself by shooting the gun just like he did in the opening, and it ricochets back at him just like it did in the opening. They did do something here. They were trying to make a point about using your head over violence. It's really telling the fact that when Shaq is called in front of all of the potential arms buyers, the skinheads, the Australians, all of these bad people that want these sonic guns, and Judd Nelson wants to kill him, he uses his head. He tricks him. He says, my hammer is more powerful than any of your guns. You know, they wanted to show that Shaq was smart, and maybe that was a miscalculation, but it was the right impulse. Forget about Steel. Sparky's the smart one here. She's got a full-on arsenal built into her wheelchair. (laughs) That thing starts spinning around, shooting out lasers. I was not prepared for that. That was something else. And then, of course, they got to bring home the fact that Shaq can throw a free throw. He gets thrown into the room with Martin, and they think they're going to blow up with a grenade, but he's able to pitch it over the window and blow up that deep-voiced henchman that hasn't had much to do. Ha! Basketball humor. I gets it. He can't throw three throws. Look, there were many, many games during the finals where his free throws were pivotal and I was on edge. Was this one of them? No, actually, this grenade that takes like 40 seconds to blow up, he could have just climbed up the wall and stuck it through that hole for as long as this grenade took to detonate. But yes, you're right. Ultimately, Steel, they don't want to make him kill. I mean, I think it's kind of how they handle these weapons, too. These weapons can do major explosions when you fire at a piece of machinery, but if they shoot a person, they just kind of fall over and look dazed or whatever. They don't want anyone to get hurt. They don't want to send the message that if you want to beat street gangs and the man, that you do it by taking a hammer to somebody. Okay, it makes for a very lame superhero, but again, the heart's in the right place, I suppose. 
It's funny in a theoretical way that Judd Nelson is destroyed because he wants too much power. If you say so, I think that it's just kind of evilness for evilness's sake. You keep saying it's for children, and I think that a lot of this is indeed just at that short cartoon level of depth. Well, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Steel? Jacob. Here was my one expectation going in. I didn't have very many, but I'd never seen a Shaq film. What, what was that? Kazaa Kazam, where he's a wizard or a genie. Genie. I haven't seen it. Yes. But listening, you know, as being a Lakers fan and Shaq having spent years on the Lakers, you know, watching his comments post and pregame, he had a lot of charisma. He, he would say some crazy stuff. So I figured maybe his charisma could carry this film. He might have charisma, but he does not have acting skills. That charisma doesn't come out. That acting sure as heck doesn't come out in this film. And so there's not a whole lot for me to grab onto here. I think you might be onto something, Stuart, when you say kids might enjoy this. I know my younger brother, I know he really enjoyed Shaq's rap album. <laughs> he, he was a little older by the time this film came out, so I don't know if he enjoyed this as much. But there was that appeal to a younger audience. There's nothing recommendable here. I, I'd much prefer sitting through this again than that Superman 4 film. This isn't much higher than that one. Uh, you know, 1.7 million, I believe this movie made. $16 million budget made 1.7 million. That is abysmal. And steel cost, you know, I mean, he looks cross-eyed. It's just <laughs> things look cheap here. Not very good, e even just a, in a kind of a campy way. There are those moments. I kind of enjoy the campiness of that 90s sitcom feel with the souffle, but it's so sparse throughout. Not recommended. Stuart. Yeah, Richard Roundtree has a line that says it all in this. You ain't Superman, and you damn sure ain't getting paid. <laughs> I don't even know how to connect it with anything we've seen before. I guess it comes closest to Supergirl in that it feels like an supremely only-for-kids kind of experience. But if that's the case, cast Urkel in this. Get Moesha involved. I mean, just go youthful, and then you would be honest about what you're making. It's a head-scratcher. It makes Shaq look like a fool, and it ruins his reputation as a role model. I mean, truly, it's a terrible Superman movie. It's a pretty bad kids film. It's a strong not recommend, but, you know, Probably if you had kids and they really loved this time in basketball, they could sit through it. So for no one else, maybe they might enjoy it. But grown adults, stay far away. I'm surprised that this movie wasn't worse. <laughs> I honestly thought, even through Supergirl, even through Superman 4, that Steel would be the lowest point of this entire Superman retrospective. And a tenuous connection to Superman at best. I was half right. I think having watched this, that I should have fought harder to not include it in the retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you would have had any fight back from us? I would have been totally cool with that. This was Jacob's doing. It wasn't in my original list. <laughs> Jacob's like, steal a Superman. I had not seen the movie. I'm talking about the character. We know in movies, they go and adapt things very differently, but... Character-wise, if we're going off with the source material, definitely connected to Superman, no question. It's about as connected to Superman as the detective was a diehard movie. I mean, this is what we do here. I don't think I could have gotten out of it, because if we hadn't put it here, it would have been one of the DC misfits we did, or we called them heroes, that we did just before Superman. So, eh, I was damned if I did, damned if I don't. But 
despite me thinking it's not as bad as I expected, it's still atrocious. And in fact, not being as bad as I expected actually hurts this film more. I hoped for Catwoman level bad. I hoped for so bad it's good bad. I hoped for a movie that we'd be able to come and have a raucous time ripping apart and then I'd go back and watch it again. There's a reason that I didn't watch it on YouTube beyond just the theatrical experience. I thought I might watch this again. This and Halloween 3, movies I can't stand that I just keep watching. (laughs) But this will never be in my player again. Never. It's video on demand, and I don't demand it. (laughs) No one. Yes. I realized the saddest part is what Stuart inferred from my statements earlier. This movie is long and laborious before Shaq puts on the armor. But after he puts on the armor, it gets worse. (laughs) I really was actually mildly into this film for that first hour before he suits up. Because I, like you, Stuart, was waiting to see how he suits up, what happens when he suits up, how cool he'll be when he suits up, and then you get it. And it's just totally anticlimactic. You've been waiting an hour, and this is what you get. He can't even say it's hammer time with any emphasis. It's like he was so embarrassed. I think Shaq felt like Super Stuart here, Stuart. I think once he put on this armor, he realized exactly how asinine he looked because he should have been there. It's hammer time! Instead, they bring the music up. It's hammer time. And that's it. That's all you get. It's miserably boring and dull and stupid. And even if you try to aim this at kids, kids are going to walk out of the room and play some video games before this thing's over. They'll go play Shaq Fu on the Nintendo. I think I'd rather hear Shaq's rap album than watch this movie again. It's a strong not recommend. But if you want to hear movies I do recommend, money, 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 money. Cash rules everything around me, including (laughs) podcasts and servers. (laughs) Our donation series is continuing and coming up some of our best 28 days and 28 weeks later. These are all for the gold level donor who donates $25 or more. These are only available until the end of June, and then they go in the vault with Alien, Child's Play, Jaws, Poltergeist, podcast to never see the light of day again. And if you can't find $25, I recognize that's not always readily available at hand, then, you know, maybe you can find $10. We do have five really good shows there, four which are already out, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, and the reboot. Plus, still to come, at the beginning of summer, we've got the biggest zombie film, the biggest horror movie. I don't know if it's going to be any good or not, but I can't wait to see World War Z. And we'll be covering that as our fifth and final in the $10 donation. You can find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me, but I'm kind of glad we are out of the super ghetto of Supergirl and Steel, and from now on in this retrospective, only the man in blue and yellow and red and capes and flying. Yeah, I'll be stealing myself for whatever's coming next, but I think the worst is over. I dare say we've got the new movie coming, doesn't look half bad, and yeah, I've seen the movie that's coming down the pike, and I want to discuss. And then we will return with Superman Returns, We'll talk to you then, up, up, and away on the escalator.
have to leave. I knew this time would come. We both knew it from the day we found you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. The virtuous spirit has no need for thankful approval, only the certain conviction that what has been done is right. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Superman movie, leading up to this summer's Man of Steel. Again, again! Superman's bad. I mean, he was bad. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of comic book movies such as all the Batman films, Green Lantern, Catwoman, the Marvel Avengers films, and many more. You've come a long way since the old neighborhood. You can also hear our reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. I never thought this thing would go the distance. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Now, this is a very special place for me. I wanted you to see it. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Let's go to my place. Maybe I should change first. You can also follow Now Playing at Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Why am I not reading it? The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Superman will be there on Wednesday, all right? The city of Metropolis is generous to a fault. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Don't tell me. He sends a check every week to his sweet gray-haired old mother. Actually, she's silver-haired. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now come on, lady, hand it over. Say, Jim, That's a bad outfit! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties. Do you like pink? Coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. They have a wide selection. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. What What more could anyone ask? A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now we're cooking, huh? Now Playing's Superman Retrospective Series is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. Your suffering will be short. Mine, forever. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures. Superman is the property of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. The dude of steel. (laughs) Where are you going to get it? The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why do you say this to me? When you know, I will kill you for it. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, I guess I'd better be going too. So I'll be going. Bye.
See you later. It's hammer time. But I here's have, the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, who's got the thing? I got a thing. I got a thing. I don't <laughs> know if it's the same thing as you. <laughs> All right. You go. It's hammer time. It is the LAPD, though. It is the LAPD, though. It's hammer time. What were we so mad about? I mean, yeah, by comparison, 20 years ago, life was pretty good. But yeah, I was much angrier. <laughs> My parents wouldn't buy me a car. <laughs> Didn't need a job. If I could turn back the world and talk to my young self, I'd say, no, you'll have things to be angry about. Stuart won't recommend Blade 2. You'll get real angry. It's hammer time. Yeah, he did a lot of the Hulk stuff, too. It had Incredible Hulk. I'm waiting for all those reviews, Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, blow me. <laughs> They're never coming! <laughs> it's hammer time. Worst TV show theme ever. Are you talking about the theme of the show or just the opening music? The alienation. Oh, beep, oh, beep. Ah! <laughs> it's hammer time.